Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. My guest for today's episode is Nathan Bell of The Intelligent Investor. Nathan and I met many years ago, and I was fortunate enough then to get an insight into a very unique thinker. In this episode, I was just blown away. Nathan and I talk about things that touch on so many different aspects of life and investing, and it was very illuminating to step inside the mind of someone who's thought about many of the challenges and problems that I've thought about before, but at a much deeper level. Nathan and I talk about finding the best 12 to 15 companies, what to do when you find them, how to avoid kind of the dogs on the market, and some of the telltale signs that make some companies great. Nathan tells us so many good stories about himself, about the companies he follows, and about the management teams he's come across. This is a fantastic conversation for any active investor who's looking to identify tomorrow's big winners today. Nathan can be found at The Intelligent Investor, and you should know that The Intelligent Investor via InvestSmart is a sponsor of the Australian Investors Podcast. You can find a link to The Intelligent Investor website as well as a discount in the show notes. Check that out. But in the meantime, enjoy this episode with Nathan Bell of The Intelligent Investor. Nathan, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast. No problems, mate. I wish I'd have been a bit more casual about a casual Friday t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. It's Friday recording in Sydney. It's a lovely day too. So it's all about the rays and the skin for me, mate. But uh, not really. I'm a Victorian, so the sun is allergic to me. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's my pleasure, mate, having you here. And um, looks like you're at home in a, in a nice shirt. I'm in the office in a casual t-shirt. So there you go. Um, we actually met in passing. You may not remember this, but we actually met in passing many years ago. Um when you were with the, a prior fund and um, we're talking global companies and the like, and uh, it really you really stood out to me as like as someone that articulated messages really well and um, thought really clearly about investing. So I'm really excited to go over some of that ground, but also a lot of the other stuff that I don't know about you. Um, but maybe to get things started, I got a few quick fire questions here, if I may, and these are a bit of fun, a bit of tongue in cheek. So the first one, Nathan, is. If you could pick one skill to achieve expertise, like to get to that level and you think, okay, I'm pretty good at this, you know, that 10,000 hours test. So not like invisibility or something. What would it be? Look, I think we already have all these superpowers as humans that we just are unaware of, a bit like they're in excess 
uh, song lyric that said, um, we all have wings, but some of us don't know why. Uh, and I think those superpowers are things like independent thinking and having grit and determination. And they're all the things that get you anywhere. And so uh, I can't come up with something, anything particularly interesting, but I find that just not giving up. Like I, I really gave up at 30 on getting a job in uh, as a, an analyst, as an investor. Mm. And I was all set to move to Melbourne. I quit my job and I was about to go. And uh, my wife said to me, shouldn't you find out about that job at Intelligent Investor where you've had about five interviews? And I said, ah, you know, they would have already hired me if uh, they wanted me. And I sat there at my desk at Deutsche Bank. I, I hated my job. I just hated it. And uh, I've been an account for 10 years and I hated every minute of it. Mm. And uh, I said, uh, and I thought to myself, oh, well, you might as well go and find out. And then I got offered the job, but it was a 40% pay cut. And I had a wife and a child at a young age. I was, you know, 30 years old, didn't have any money. Um, and that was a really big decision. And uh, I actually got sacked by my boss about 12 months in. And then within 18 months, I was the CEO of the business. So um, I've been learning the guitar for two years and I find it just comes down to the grit determination to keep going. And if you don't have that, you're not going to get anywhere with anything. I love that. That's uh, that's great. You've already got it. So I really like it. Uh, second one, mate, is a bit of a false choice. But if you could choose, only choose five companies, um, but they're public or private, so you could only have five private or five public, and you had to hold them for at least 10 years, which way would you go? Yeah, so private enterprise. So I've seen this. I'm not going to answer this whole question because we'll be here all day, but uh, mm. I've been involved in Intelligent Investor since 2006. And before that, I'd worked at two very large companies. One was Carter Holt Harvey, uh, which some people might know is a forestry company and based in New Zealand. And that was a very big company. And then the second one was Deutsche Bank, which was actually the largest bank by assets on the planet at one point hmm. um, before the GFC, when it quickly eroded and become one of the smallest investment banks on the planet, <laughs> <laughs> at least equity-wise. Anyway. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've seen uh, just the bigger the company uh, is, the, the more responsibility you've got and just the, the tougher it is. It takes an, an incredible people and I think an incredible type of business and uh, just behavioral traits to go from someone who's very skillful at something and starting a business to then becoming a manager and growing a large business. Mm. They're just completely two different things. So in terms of you know a private business, I just personally have no interest. I don't want to be involved in a private business. Mm. But if someone comes along and says, look, just invest a certain amount of money in essentially, you know, pre-IPO, for example, um, my wife's in a very good little business at the moment. And uh, she's got some equity in that, which is a competitor to baby bunting and they're hmm. going really well. So that's probably the first sort of, I guess, eye-opening or pr uh, private experience I've had with a private business. And I, and I imagine that business is going to go very well. I'm very confident in that. But the thing about listed companies is when something goes wrong, you can have your money back in two days. Hmm. That liquidity is just enormous to me. And the types of businesses that you can buy on market, even though it seems like there's less great businesses today than there ever has been because they're just getting taken out and taken off the market. You know, personally, I just much prefer the listed businesses and obviously it's a huge bias because that's what I've mm. done for so long now. But just that liquidity when something's gone wrong to get out, whereas when you're in a private business, if something goes wrong and you either have to adjust your whole business or you're just fighting against a trend that you, you cannot turn, uh, like that's a horrible situation to mm. be in and I would never want to be in that. So I'll go with my listed companies and in terms of I'll just rather than pick all the companies, I'll just say generally mm, this sure. idea of long-term investing is is really difficult, I think, in the modern day, even more so than it's ever been, because 
the great businesses, at least the business we used to think were great, but things are changing even for fundamental or sorry, more simple businesses like Coca-Cola or Gillette. Now, these businesses have got competitors now. Now you've got boutique ways to buy razors and cheap way to buy razors and you don't necessarily need four blades on every razor mm. as people are finding out. So you don't need to keep paying all those sort of prices. Um, Coca-Cola has only done any good in the last 10 or 15 years because of water, of all things. Mm. Um, and now you've got ESG and it's pressure on the, the cans and the wastage in the bottles. So things are changing. So to sit there and say you want to own a business for 10 to 20 years is just such a difficult thing to say. And we'll probably t- we're going to talk about this company later, but it's interesting. One of the things I think has been very helpful to Macquarie Group which is really just used to be an investment bank and now it's more of a fund manager. Mm. But that ability to take money and invest it where you think you're going to find the best returns. So I guess you call that flexibility or nimbleness, whatever you want to call it, is really valuable in the modern world. But it's unique. You don't find many businesses that can do one thing and then go and do something else. But I think that ability where you can find something small, where you can be a bit agile, um, they're the sort of traits you're looking for. But other than that, it's um, that diversification you can have in the portfolio is just a great bonus and being able to sell and get your money back mm-hmm. um, give me the listed businesses any day <laughs> i like it mate very well uh rationalized there i like it um so second last um quirky question which is um i don't know if there's a quick take on this one because we could go for days on this i'm sure but in your opinion does short selling work um that's a great question i, I don't I haven't seen many, if any, great fortunes made with short sellers. It might be a part of their strategy, but all the huge money is made on the long side, and that's why you don't see short sellers on the Forbes rich list uh, or the BAW rich list. In fact, if you were to copy those people, generally they own one business and they have everything in it. and They're they're all in. They've got one egg in their basket and they look after that egg. And that's very different from what you get taught in investing where you have a diversified portfolio and most fund managers and ETFs have hundreds, if not thousands of companies, mm. portfolios. So it depends re- really what you're trying to, to get out of it. And uh, for me, you know, we talk about swinging for the fences sometimes. And I think mm. um, I'm probably trying to do that personally. But with the funds we manage at Intelligent Investor, I find once you get past 20 stocks, the ideas tend to get pretty poor and you're not very excited about them. And, and the research shows, even for fund managers underperform, their top 10 stocks actually really perform very mm. well. Um, it's the fact that they're forced to be diversified and that ruins their returns. So I think there's some important lessons there for how you handle your money. Mm. I like it. All right, last one of these little questions, which is um, can you describe the macroeconomic environment in a couple of sentences? Yeah, complex. <laughs> uh, that's, that's one of them. And, uh, and you can't get blood from a stone. And, and I think that's what we're learning now is yeah. they've tried these monetary policies where we tried essentially to to bend the system because we didn't like having to take long-term hard decisions. We didn't want to take that pain. So we bent the system and we did zero interest rates and quantitative easing. And now that's snapping back and we're paying the price for that. And mm. that was completely expected and that shouldn't surprise anyone. And we're coming down from a 13-year bull market in everything. It, you know, it does not stocks. It's almost, a, it's almost a bit like the roaring 20s where just everything went up and everyone's leveraged and um, now the bill's coming due. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just being realistic. It's pragmatic, isn't it? It's a pragmatist view of things if you think about that. Um, you know, it's just interest rates lifting all boats. Um, so, Nathan, 
I, you mentioned before that you, you know, you spent a long time as an accountant before becoming an analyst. Um, did you have a background or did you have some sort of grounding in investing or business as a kid or as a, you know, young adult? Did you, was that part of your DNA? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, all I remember, and I don't know what caused it or when it started, but all I remember is always just wanting to be an investor and understanding business. And the only thing I can really think about was my parents were divorced when I was 10. Uh, we moved into government housing um, in country right. South Australia, Mount Gambia. So we never had any money. I mean, you divide no money into two, you have even less. Um, and it was hard. Like we had no money. So, but I mean, most of my mates were the same. You didn't really notice it too much most of the time. But it, um, I noticed it more when I got older. And it really drove me to find some other way to have money. And, uh, all I ever wanted was my financial independence. I, did, I didn't want a lot of money. I just wanted to live my way each day. And I, um, I knew that I actually wanted a million dollars by the time I was 35 because I knew I wouldn't be able to work for someone else by then. Um, and it turned out by the time I got to 35, a million dollars wouldn't even buy you a two-bedroom apartment in Sydney. So <laughs> I needed to aim higher. Uh, but in terms of the business grounding, the, the first one was I used to get up early in my school holidays and go and work with my dad. And he used to drive a truck around the southeast of um, South Australia and uh, Western Victoria delivering Schweppes drinks. And he was a really hard worker and a great sportsman, played state footy for Tasmania and first-class mm. cricket as well. And he would get up at 2 or 3, 4 a.m. and go off and get the drinks um, dropped off as early as possible. And I, I'd jump in the back and sleep and <laughs> wake <laughs> up about 7, get a cheese and tomato, to cheese and tomato toasted sandwich when we are almost home. And when we got back to the depot, I'd, I'd count the money uh, that mm. he collect back in those days. You'd have the old $20 or $50 notes to, to count, so um, you know, cash economy. Mm -hmm. So I'd sit there and count that up. So that was my first dealing with money. And my dad always told me, even though we never had any money, that how important it was to save. But I even remember just looking around the depot and seeing the different jobs that people had. I knew my dad had to pay for the truck himself. Um, you know, I knew the hardship of what the divorce was like. And I also remember looking at the wooden pallets around the depot. So only, this is over 35 years ago. And thinking, geez, is that really the best thing they've got to move all these crates around? And here we are four decades later and like Brambles mm. shows you that, yes, some <laughs> things don't change. Mm. So there's a lot of business lessons in that. And for some reason, I was always understood it. And I don't know when the investment bug kicked in, but I just always knew at some point that investing was this place <clears> where if you're really patient and had grit, which I had, I thought I had anyway, um, and you're prepared to go against the crowd and you could actually do analysis yourself and come up with better decisions than whoever the, the average investor was. And if you just hung on for the long term, you made money. And I didn't read any books. Um, I wish I had of. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I just understood that, but I, I did everything wrong after that. I sort of had the right start. I invested early. And then just went off and got my meal tickets and tried technical analysis. And you know, I was more focused on getting meal tickets than I was actually analyzing businesses. And um, that's, you know, if I told anyone, like, if you actually want to be an analyst or an investor, you know, don't worry about the meal tickets, just go and invest the money and analyze the businesses. Because if you sit down, if you want an interview with a fund manager, they're going to ask you what your three best ideas are and you need to go through those best ideas. And that's why my CV just never got anywhere. So that's why I had to take the 40% pay cut. Um, an intelligent investor. Mm. Um, so obviously that early grounding in business, uh, seeing your dad get up early and count the money with him and all that, um, that gave you obviously an insight into business. 
is that where the accounting street came from? You knew like you needed to understand numbers to then interpret how investing works? Yeah. So, I mean, I was naturally good at numbers at school. So I remember in primary school, I used to go up a grade by myself and do their maths. Mm. Um, and funnily enough, uh, it actually turned out to be a, a falsehood because as high school mm. went on and it got harder and harder at some point, I just thought I was going to naturally be able to do it. And then I realized in year 12, where I only did maths one, so not the super hard maths. And uh, I realized with um, a week before the exam that I actually didn't know what I was doing <laughs> and rushed to the teacher and said, oh, I stuffed it. I just haven't done the work. And uh, <laughs> so that was where maths got me. But I, I did always understand the numbers. And to me, the accounting thing was just more practical than anything. I grew up in Mount Gambia, which had 25,000 people. And there's no real white collar jobs there. You know, there's a few insurance agents. And um, and there's a, there a couple of accounting jobs. And um, it just seemed... I didn't actually get into accounting. I picked accounting at Adelaide Uni and um, didn't quite get the score. Um, so I ended up picking um, <laughs> just a low thing at Flinders University and the lowest thing that had anything to do with money was economics. And um, I could have actually done better in terms of getting into a higher rank course, but um, I got into my safeguard and ended up at Flinders Uni on my own with all my mates at Adelaide Uni. And um, I actually enjoyed that a lot more than accounting, but I got uh, finished the three years um, got accepted to do honours and I really didn't want to do it. I was, I didn't actually think it was going to be very practical, but I got offered a job back in Mount Gambia and um, I could go back and play footy for my old team and get a bit of extra money. And so my plan was to take the graduate accounting job at Carter Holt Hovey and just learn a little bit about business. And Buffett, not that I knew he said it at the time, but he was always said it was accounting was the language of business and you need to understand that stuff. And I thought that would be a great entree into becoming an investor and an analyst um, mm. It turns out it sort of is, but that sort of old method of going from accounting to investing is broken down, I think. And so that sort of wasn't there by the time I was old enough and mature enough with enough experience to make that move. Um, but that's where it really came from. I was really just trying to get a job mm. and talking about a kid who come from a trust home, um, you know, earning $25,000 in your first year of uni was actually sounded pretty good. Mm, if you, here's a question for you, Nathan. If you were to do it again, would you go back and if you wanted to be an investor today, you know, young Nathan, would you say to him, go and study accounting, go and study economics? Like, what would you say? Yeah, no, definitely the opposite. I'd just say there's so many uh, books out there now, but just go and read three or four of the classics. That's it. You don't even have to read any more than that. The Peter Lynch books, go and read all the Buffett letters. I still think they're the single best, mm. um, you know, ornament to investing in, and business. Just, just understanding and return on capital and, how businesses can invest and they can choose to invest or repay the money to shareholders and what avenues they've actually got to invest and why is it that some companies end up leveraging up the balance sheet and buying a stupid business that makes no sense and then having to have another CEO come in and fix it up and then they get paid twice as, twice as much as they should just to get the best business back to where it was before. Like <laughs> uh, just understanding those things is huge and the earlier you can understand those things, but the things that really helped and we talked about superpowers early on and I, mm. funny enough, I actually made a little list here. Mm. Um, uh, I might actually just read a few of them. Yeah, sure. I think these sure. are the things you need to learn that you won't find necessarily in textbooks. But if you're looking, I think these days there's enough of these books around um, about psychology and how it relates to investing that just reading a couple of these books, these are the superpowers of investing and like just being able to think long-term independently to own your own mistakes in investing, which I still see adults who just refuse to acknowledge their own mistakes. But when a stock goes up, they take all the credit. Mm. All right, you're never going to be a good investor by living that way or in life for that matter. 
Um, to be bold and back your own analysis is huge. And I could tell you multiple stories of missing dominoes at $3 because Steve walked past me and said, look at these idiots thinking they're going to be able to sell pizzas to the Italians. And <laughs> I, I was pretty green and I was going to take this to our dragon's den. And that $3, like that $3 stock went to 160 bucks last year. Um, you know, and, and I didn't buy it because this um, superior in the business who I was going to have to convince in the dragon's den said they were idiots. And I thought, well, he must know better than I do. So I'm not going to buy it. So, you know, being in an environment around other professionals, um, you look at them and you're very biased by them. So you've got to have the courage of your convictions. And I think that's a huge one to have. Uh, I can talk about other stocks as well, but to avoid the crowd um, and even just a couple of little things I put on here, like these are superpowers, not just not for business necessarily, but just for life, but to be able to apologize and having a mm. sense of justice and not be greedy. Uh, I, I just think that the older I've got, the more I realize how important they are to not in business and investing you know, with your staff, like as a fund manager, I'm here, I'm managing staff expectations, client expectations, members in a subscription business, management expectations, investors in our business, InvestSmart, which is also a listed business, mm. our, our board, um, the ASX, whose listing rules we have to abide by and whose liquidity rules are applied to our portfolios. So there's all these groups of people that you've got to manage the expectations for. And I, and I think those other skills, if you could, the earlier you can learn those, and grow up as an adult. And I wish a lot of those things in psychology, um, you know, in ancient philosophy, I wish, wish I knew more about those things when I was a teenager. And, um, you know, I sort of had some emotional issues with my parents' divorce and those sort of things. And I had a bit of a wake up when I was 25 years old and realized I couldn't, uh, you know, keep reacting to things with just anger and frustration and not talking to people and things like that. And, and you talk about being a CEO of a business and, um, a position of responsibility now, like I couldn't have been that person at 25, even though I was captain of sports sides a lot, but that was from more from ability than anything else. Um, but if you can learn all those types of things, which aren't just about hardcore numbers, um, like you're an attribute no matter what business you're in. Hey, that's a, wow. Um, I don't even know where to begin to unpack that, but um, <laughs> I guess first thing it's like, thanks for sharing. Like a lot of those uh, details personal and i can relate to a lot of them to be honest in fact like i'm just imagining myself as you're explaining them um and yeah i i think to be honest i i was saying recently um as actually to evan evan lucas of all people um that you know the, the ability for introspection is like it's a superpower in itself the ability to look in on yourself and study yourself it's just so powerful and it took me i'm 31 now nathan and uh, it took me till 31 to figure that out um, and I wish I, I wish I learned it earlier on because not only would my investing be better, that would be like a, you know, a micro part of it, but the, my life would be better. Right. And so I'd understand the world better. And, um, yeah, I can relate to so much of what you're saying there. I think the other one, just the sort of icing on the cake for that stuff, which I've learned more recently is forgiving yourself. I think we're just so hard on ourselves and we put such huge expectations on ourselves. And uh, I talked about how my dad was a, a sports star in a way. Um, as I said, he played state football for uh, cricket. Um, and my dad never put that pressure on me, but you carry that around, especially in a small town. So everyone expects you to be a good football player. And I was, but I never, I went to Glenelg and never quite made mm -hmm. it. I wasn't big enough and didn't put enough into it. But um, but the same with investing in the stock. I just think I've, I've seen the vitriol that comes out these days. And I think part of it's driven by social media that when you get a stock wrong, it's just the vitriol that comes on us these days is far worse um, than I ever, ever than it used to be. 
Um, and you've got to be able to forgive yourself, but I think also you've got to be able to forgive other people as well. And I think that's a really monumental thing to be able to, to do in life. And I've had um, had to deal with friends who have suicided in recent years, and people and they left a lot behind a lot of blame for other people to carry around, and they're trying to work through the process of what they did wrong. And if the last point of it was actually just forgive themselves because they didn't actually do anything wrong. It's just, it's just a difficult situation, but. I think in business, we've got to be able to be bold and make mistakes. And I think this is why the American economy is still the best in the world, because people respect people who build businesses and fail. Um, mm. And obviously, there's some nasty failures where they've done the wrong thing. But that entrepreneurialism is something I think is still lacking in Australia. We need to encourage more rather than encourage people to flip homes where they're making so much money, but doesn't really add any value to society or to the world. Whereas building a business really does. It hires people and and I've seen a number of people who have retired early because of their investing deeds and then spiral into depression because they've got nothing sort of left. They're just sitting at home doing nothing. They've got no social interaction. They've got no challenges to outperform or to find the next stock or whatever it is. And um, you know, I think we're going to talk about what would you do with a lot of money. But um, I've just seen the best and worst of money and mostly the worst. Um, and funny enough, all I wanted to be was financially independent. That's all I've strived for and should have happened earlier. But Funny enough, now that I've got here, I, I thought I would have quit straight away. And yet, mm. I've seen what other people have gone through. I've seen that quitting is not necessarily the answer, um, particularly in intelligent investor, where it's taken a while to get the place going. And and the team's been together. We've been together for at least ten years, some of us, and fifteen and sixteen years um, for others. And they valued friends as much as they are, um, you know, mm. part of the team and, and staff. And so, um, you know, Investmart went through a tough time through the GFC. Uh, sorry, through the COVID bust and now finally everyone's happier the business is going well so i don't want to walk away from that but i'm also just um learning more about human behavior and what people have gone through and um you've got to really be, have something driving you because i i think alzheimer's is the other thing mm. where this falls off is people retiring in their 50s and got nothing to do so they sit down and watch the tennis on tv and you know maybe just be unrelated but they end up dying early of alzheimer's and so we've got to find these challenges um and, and money's not the answer to everything yeah, I love it. Um, Sorry, mate, bit deep for a Friday afternoon. No, no, it's probably the best time for it, right? And we can just take this into the weekend and let it let it soak in. Um, yeah, I, I that's I, I got to say, like the the tall poppy syndrome that we have here in Australia um, from a, an entrepreneurial perspective is unfortunate in that we look at people and we're pretty quick to shoot them down. Um, that's I guess a natural human tendency in in a way, and jealousy and all those envy things that come in, but also. You know, I do look at the the capitalistic nature of the U.S. And while I wouldn't be the person that says that looks at the the rich list and says they're the the most successful, you know, some people we say the most successful because they're wealthy. Um, I don't necessarily buy into that, but I do buy into the idea of taking risk and being proud whether you succeed or you fail. I think that innovation is what drives society, and I think the reason that businesses exist in the first instance is because they create value, right? There's a cost and there's value created above that cost. And that is what adds value back into the economy and keeps things moving forward. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think one of the worst things that's come out of this zero interest rate um, era here, if you like, or just episode is that really the, the normal rules for business investing didn't apply anymore. And basically there was just so much money going around People could do anything, and, mm -hmm. and and it is funny. It's, it's sort of two sides to it. There's 
sometimes you need that free and easy money in the good times to actually start businesses. Uh, a bit like a fund manager, if you want to raise money, the best time is mm. at the peak of the bull market when you've got the least ideas. But if you go out there with a portfolio of great ideas at the bottom of a bear market, no one will give you any money. Mm. So some good things can come out of that. But but I, normally what you see when you've got an interest rate so low where there's uh, just free and easy money and no penalty and essentially the hurdles for business success are so low and the money being invested is so frivolous that you, you get things like all these Bitcoin and, you know, the, the the derivatives you know i mean we haven't really established that many processes for valuable processes for bitcoin anyway but all the derivatives i think about how much money has been blown up in that for no other reason than speculation and i think that's the problem with the zero interest rates at least one of the major ones anyway is that it stops people thinking about proper business and proper returns and doing something useful um, and turns into just a waste of money and i, and I actually think there's been this enormous opportunity lost around the world, but particularly in Australia and, and America and, and Europe um, to a lesser degree. But we could have invested in green energy or, um, you know, building more hospitals or schools or whatever because we could borrow at nothing. Mm. Uh, and we and we didn't do that. We just threw money at people and, um, and not, not completely wasted it because obviously that was some people's income and it's all they had. But we could have just improved productivity out of sight and done some really useful long-term investments for the next 20 years and no one did that it's, it's not a popular thing to do it doesn't win your votes but that's why you're supposed to uh, have politicians and leaders that can stand up and tell you and explain why we need these things and why they're worth doing and unfortunately politics is just such a horrible place to be at the moment and popular politics means a lot of these important things aren't getting done so um, I, I don't like the environment we're in I don't like the way the stock market these days seems to be more of a casino than it's ever been. I think it feels like it's more important than actually building businesses. Um, so it's actually, I don't actually mind seeing is it uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks and these people actually getting involved in some business and putting some of their huge fortunes into something more useful for society. Do you think, Nathan, that, you know, what the, as we roll out of QE, um, or maybe fall out of it, um, do you think though that, we will see so the dust settles and those mediocre businesses the ideas the concepts whatever they you know they fall to their knees and maybe they go out of business but do you think then it makes it emboldens those that were built on like legitimate foundations yeah it's an interesting one i think if i look at um i don't know if this quite answers the question but i'd say one of the real i guess disappointments is when you hear terms like fintech or new new fintech and mm -hmm. you actually have a look at what these businesses are actually doing and, you know, buy now, pay later. I mean, seriously, has there ever been a bigger waste of money? And and I hear people still, even though, you know, the, the more these businesses lend, the more money they lose. I've heard, you know, good fund managers still talking up the management of, the, of that business. And I, I just think it's disgraceful. But I see a lot of the new fintech is just really online avenues for existing business that they're just taking off the banks so you know are they creating anything new and wonderful for the world well not really it's just a quicker way to get a loan with more risk um so i think that's what the disappointing thing is and a lot of these businesses will actually survive and do okay but the, the funny enough the the big banks are actually in the best position to pick these businesses off because um to lend money you need a huge balance sheet and what all of these fintechs are discovering right now is that they don't have the balance sheets to continue borrowing money through the RMBS market or the banks won't continue to give them loans. So there's a limit to how much money they can lend. 
but there's also a limit to how much pe- money people can borrow. And if people aren't maxed out at the moment with their mortgage rates about to go up about 35% over the next 18 months, um, you know, I really don't know how much how well these businesses are going to do, but some of them are trading surprisingly cheap. But it's interesting, just I think the, my key point is what's seen as innovation uh, is really not innovation at all. And I think a lot of these companies that are called tech stocks really don't deserve that name at all. Mm, I like it. Um, so, mate, let's pick up your story again. I'd love to... You mentioned the you know the move from accounting then through to investment intelligent investor. Can you take us through that period and what you were working on and how it came to be that you know you work for the business? Yeah, so um, so basically, I was an accountant. I went to London um, for a couple of years, just on the old visa holiday visa, mm-hmm. uh, and I did that because I was actually more afraid of moving to Sydney on my own because <laughs> London seemed to have this whole structure for um, you know, antiquity and as to work. And so, and I wanted to go and have a look at the world and went to Russia and a few different places. And um, so I did that for two years and I actually ended up depressed because uh, I sort of fell out with my dad through that period and you're away from all your mates. And then the second year, there was no spring. So so remember, when you go to work in London, like all day, like it's dark when you go to work and it's dark when you walk out of the office. So it's really depressing. Mm. So you really wait for spring to come. So spring never came the second year and summer was like barely a spring at all. So it was a really horrible weather and it, it really does mess with you. So um, I got pretty down, left left depressed, come home, moved to Sydney, uh, where a mate who has become a very good um, barrister in Sydney. And uh, so my first job was accounting, which I just hated, but I, that's, I knew that's all I was going to get the job doing. And I just kept sending in my CVs uh, while I was doing, uh, I did the, the Fincher course, uh, the graduate oh, yeah. um, applied finance whatever it's called and then that's Kaplan these days mm-hmm. and I finished that while I was in London and um, so then I'd send my CV and people when I got back to Australia people would say oh no you don't need that you need this CFA I was like oh like I, it took me forever to finish this thing <laughs> and uh, and I almost did like two streams I did like the regular analyst one and then I did um, all the financial planning one as well bar one subject when I finished my CFA and got my <laughs> job at II and said I, I just can't do it I, I've never you know flunked anything in my life but I just or completed anything I just couldn't do it um, so I had my job at Deutsche Bank and uh, I had that for maybe two or three years um, just doing a different accounting. It's not interesting. And I basically just gave up. You know, I was 30 years old. I'd done my CFA by that stage. I failed two levels, uh, mm. which was really frustrating. Um, the second level, I thought I might fail. I wasn't confident. I must have only just failed. But the third level, I didn't expect to fail. And when you fail one of those levels, you've got to wait 12 months to do it again. And here was me thinking that my whole future opportunity to work as an investment analyst relied on me having this meal ticket so i was really angry about that because i'd done a lot of work and it just for whatever reason i just didn't get there anyway i sorted out the next year and um, that was basically the exact same time that i got my job at intelligent investor and it's, it's funny it wasn't my analysis i don't even think got me the job i think it was more <laughs> that i wrote an article with a couple of jokes in it and because it had a little bit of personality in it and i think there was some clear obviously that i had a financial background probably got me over the line um, but when I got in there, I actually feel like I, you know, my boss said this to me, like, I understood the basics of investing well, straight up. Now, my writing was terrible. And that's part of the reason I got sacked. Um, <laughs> but like, writing's hard. You think, you think learning to be an investor is hard. Like, writing is just, another thing. Like, it took me five years to be just half decent at it. And I still don't think I'm very good at it. Mm. And uh, particularly against the guys I work with. But um, once I got in there, I actually felt like I was picking the right stocks. The I think the, if I look back, the the worst thing that happened through that period was the culture of the time was 
esoteric stocks, like really finding, um, I don't know if you've ever um, talked to Steve at Forager, but the yeah. way he invests is that real cigar butt type stuff. And that was really the stuff that was rewarded in the business. And th- I just think that's really, really hard way to invest. And it, it wasn't um, personally the way I invested, but it kept pushing you into that direction to buy these really low quality stocks, hoping you're going to make double your money or triple your money because it was trading at such a low valuation. Mm. And then, um, you know, Timbercorp went broke and we were all up and down the credit structure as well as the equities. Um, then the other one that was uh, similar, um, Green, whatever the other timber company was, mm. um, that went broke. And I actually attended the, I call it the wake in Melbourne because <laughs> uh, I'd moved down to Melbourne at this stage because Greg had sacked me and I think I was going to lose my job. And uh, I went along and there was, um, you know, I don't know, there's probably 300 people in this auditorium. And I, uh, I think it was a special meeting that was called and they hadn't officially gone, Great Southern, sorry, was the other one. Mm-hmm. And um, they hadn't officially gone bankrupt yet. But I was sitting there with no money on the line, listening to some people, one person put $8 million into the credit what? securities and the ordinary shares. And this thing was worth zero. Um, so that was, so this was a path we'd sort of gone down as a business and it all blew up in the GFC. It's not that we didn't upgrade Cochlears of the world and um, some things like that, but I, um, I really missed a big opportunity personally because when the GFC came, I upgraded a bunch of stocks like um, Nanosonics, which ended up being a 10-bagger, CSL, mm. which I remember upgrading at like $32. And thinking, geez, I hope I, this, if this goes well, it could get to forty dollars in the next couple of years. You know, it went to three hundred and thirty bucks over the next decade. Never owned a share. Dominoes, I passed on because, as I told you, the Steve story. Um, you know, and I upgraded a bunch of great stocks, and um, you know, a lot of members would have done really well following those stocks. But I was sort of stuck in this no man's land of trying to buy this cheap stuff, mm. and you know, I did okay, but like nothing compared to you know, the 10 and 20 times amount of money you made on buying these great businesses at good prices. It was that simple. And it wasn't like I wasn't aware of them. I was telling other people to buy them. I didn't yeah. buy them myself because <laughs> I thought it was too easy. You know, it's like investing can't be this easy. And I think that's the real lesson I've tried to carry around to the team these days is let's not make it harder mm-hmm. than it needs to be, you know. And that's what professional investing really does to you. It tries to put you in a box. And if I just give you a couple of examples, we've got three funds where we've got an income fund a growth fund and an ethical fund um, because they're ASX listed ETFs, they all have very strict liquidity requir- requirements on them. So you can't just go and buy your, all your favorite small cap stocks. Mm. They're all cap funds. You've got a very small amount of those you can buy. And if they don't get you on the market cap size, they get you on the number of shares traded. So we even own uh, Infratil, which is like a $6 billion business, infrastructure business. It's worked out great. But because the ASX shares, it's, it's a New Zealand-based company, because mm. the ASX, like not many shares trade, it gets caught in our liquidity bucket. So now you've got share prices falling and more shares falling into the small cap bucket. Now I'm selling businesses I really like just because they're falling into that small cap bucket. And this is without any redemptions or anything like that. Um, so, and I, just, I remember there was a, another small cap fund, which I owned is Altium. Mm. You know, I, I watched them own this and talk about this company from like two bucks. And it got up to $8, and I think maybe it was a billion-dollar business at that stage. And they loved this business. They knew it inside out. It was everything they wanted. And I'm pretty sure the guys invested in personally and made a fortune. But the thing is, when you own those great businesses, what's the worst thing possibly you could do in the world is sell it. Like you've got to crystallize capital gains. 
you got to go and find something else to invest in that you don't know as well, or it's nowhere near as good a company. And the only reason they had to sell it was because they're a small cap company. Now, that just makes absolutely no sense, no mm. common sense whatsoever, other than you're a small cap manager and you've told the market that you're a small cap manager and therefore at a billion dollars, you're going to have to sell these companies. That, that's just the stupidest way to invest <laughs> I can imagine. So so you learn these things as you go along. And, and I sit here now as a 46-year-old and those three years I spent at Peters McGregor at the International Fund, I remember probably a month or two in and I won't go into too much detail about my experience there, but I, I realised I was actually a better investor than what I'd give myself credit for at that point. I, one of the reasons I took that job was because I wanted to go out. So Intelligent Investor was the only investing organisation I'd ever worked in, and I mm. just wanted to see whether our processes were as good or, you know, in Peter McGregor being around for 20-odd years with a good track record, um, you know, what did these guys do differently? And and I realised that it wasn't anything different. We had a good process at Intelligent Investor, and I realised I was a better investor than I gave myself credit for, and that gave me a lot of confidence that from then on, um, you know, whenever I got my next role or whatever, that I was capable of a lot more than I'd already done. And I'd, the returns when I was managing the model portfolios in Tells Investor were very good, mm. but it was a very good period to be investing as well, sort of 2011 to 2015, coming out of the GFC. But um, I just believed in myself a lot more then. So when the time came and I came back to Intel's Investor, I had a very clear idea of the companies I wanted to own. And I think that's the beauty of the Australian market. He says, when you do global, it's just never ending. Mm. Um, you like it's just there's always 50 more stocks to look at and and you end up sort of just paralysis analysis i think there's just too much to choose from and and there's never any work plus the hours are different uh, plus there's quarterly reporting uh, and there's always another 50 stocks in another country you don't know about so go and spend some time on them but um but to me i've just because of that experience of watching the csls and um, the dominoes and nanosonics and um, you know you didn't have to take big risks to make huge amounts of money but the earlier you can find those businesses the better and so that's really what i try to drive it intelligent investor is keep it simple and find the stocks we like keep an eye on valuation stick to the quality but let's try and find two or three new big winners every year and whether that's a, an ordinate or a frontier digital ventures or an rpm global um, which i think are probably the cream or, or an ma financial or probably the cream of the what i think are the safe you know, more reliable small cap stocks or saying that about Frontier is probably a stretch <laughs> at the moment. Um, but they're the sort of business can make an enormous difference to your portfolio. Um, and, you know, and then this year we bought coal stocks. Or two years ago we bought coal stocks and obviously we didn't expect Whitehaven to go to $10, but occasionally you just get these incredible bargains. And, you know, again, when we first upgraded it, you know, Gaurav said buy at $1 and sell at 3 And I thought, oh, well, I can probably buy other stocks that can do better than that. Now we've got this downturn coming. There'll be business could go up 10 times well you know take the take the opportunity while it's in front of you because <laughs> it's probably the lesson because you know he's him and another friend of ours have made millions out of this um mm. and it just goes to show you you never get them all right you're going to miss things and you got to live with that but uh, i just think investing is always a challenge but as soon as you try to complicate it or again try to get blood out of a stone by taking on margin loans or buying putting too much in that risky thing um you know it catches up with you pretty quickly um, so obviously there's so many things we could pull on there, but one of the things is obviously Australia being a smaller pond for you to fish in. And you said, you know, two or three new ideas a year is, you know, great. Um, how do you, how do you go about like, I guess in the initial sense, Nathan, just for folks that are kind of new to intelligent investor, how do you go about 
Like what are the characteristics of businesses that typically end up in the portfolio? Do you have like screening filters or anything like that that you or metrics that you look at as like a rule of thumb? Yeah, look, there's a, a lot of that stuff I probably just do in my head or I just know that I, I don't think about on a daily basis. But I think this is probably the one thing um, if I could just tell people I wish someone had told me yeah. early is just if you've got money early on, just buy the best business you can find and don't worry about the rest. Just buy the best business, and the more you save, put more into it. Or you know, if you want to diversify a bit more as you get um, a bit more money together, you know, buy the second best business or the third. But don't go buying the twentieth best or whatever. Um, those great rare compounding businesses, just focus on them and nothing else. And that, that's the advice that Charlie Munger mm. gives to everyone. Basically, you know, he's only owned two stocks: is Berkshire Hathaway and Costco. And Costco, you know, depending on how you look at, it, is arguably the greatest retailer ever or certainly one of them anyway mm. and it's just that compounding over time that just creates the magic so the question then is from people okay well how do you find the best business and it's actually it's actually pretty easy um you know i say it's easy now but obviously <laughs> when you're starting out from nothing it's um, just trying to work out what's good business is difficult but there, there are a couple of attributes one it sounds so blindingly obvious but just buy the best business in the best industry and, and buy the market leader. Very occasionally buying the second best in, a, in an industry can work out. Like Fish and Parker Healthcare is sort of the third operator against ResMed and Respironics um, for sleep apnea products. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a it's very, very good business. Um, that's, a rare, that's a rare one though. It's very rare that the second and third player or anything as good as anywhere near as good as the first player. But be prepared to pay a premium for these businesses. And that's where a lot of people go wrong trying to buy statistically cheap stuff. But these businesses trade at a premium for a reason. And the reason is, is what you want is a company that doesn't pay dividends but has so many investment opportunities in front of it that they're going to earn high returns on when they reinvest that money and can keep doing that for long periods. And that's essentially what the what the definition of compounding is. And so this is what I think the magic of CSL is. And Brian McNamee, who was the CEO there, mm. and I thought this is sort of the magic and the difficulty of CSL as well. Is over the years, like I've heard from lots of people who own shares from 1992 that they bought it like a dollar mm. or two dollars or whatever it was. There's no way in the world anyone, and even anyone who worked in that business, knew what CSL was going to become. You know, even 10 or 15 years ago, you didn't know what it was going to become today. Uh, it's just got better and better and better. And as time goes on, the business has got better and the competitors have gone away, certainly less of them. So, you know, there's a lot of luck involved in investing, but that to me highlights that it's not obvious always. You know, the great businesses aren't obvious, but the ones that are, are great, just they, they invest for the long term. They're patient. They're not doing risky acquisitions. They're not doing debt fueled acquisitions. They're not trying to force anything. Um, they're, they're just trying to staying within their financial means. But they are investing for the future and they're prepared to wear financial pain in the short term to make those investments. And I think that's where the magic is in CSL because a lot of the investments they make are like for 10 years ahead and they have no guarantee of whether those investments are going to pay off. And that's really the, the magic because uh, there's an article I read a long time ago where Brian McNamee said it's actually his chief scientist, who I think might have been his last name was Fraser, said, um, you know, he's the magic person. He's the one deciding how much money I need and what investments I'm going to make not knowing what the payoff is in 10 years, whereas that's very different to, let's say, Coca-Cola, which is famous because Buffett made so much money out of it, where they've got this incredible distribution network all around the world, and all they have to do is just keep expanding the network and keep increasing their marketing. 
Mm. Um, so that's that's much more predictable than CSL. So, and CSL share price went nowhere for five years. So, again, it just shows incredible patience to be able to hold through that period because, you know, I actually tell people, Geez, I couldn't have done that. And mm. yet, funnily enough, Frontier's share price is almost back to where I bought it six years ago. And uh, mm. I think it's a 20 times better business than it was when I bought it, but the share price isn't saying that. Mm. How many of these great businesses do you think are currently available on the ASX? So, um, even like even if you don't own them necessarily, like how many roughly would you think that they are out of the two thousand two hundred stocks or whatever we are? Yeah, uh, my guess is twelve to fifteen. Um, yeah. That's it. There's no more than that. Yeah, right. And so, I feel like if there's only twelve to fifteen, I feel like you've almost got to own them, right? Like if you, once you find them, you've got to stay with them. It's it's so like it's so hard. And, and I sit here and uh, a bit of a mentor for mine and, and a great read if uh, if anyone wants to read quarterlies, they're by far the best quarterlies um, ever written is uh, Tony Schinner at uh, Selector Funds Management. They're oh, yeah. getting pretty long these days, so people won't have the patience to go with them. But they are for the Australian market, these are the Buffett letters. Uh, they're, inc- they're incredible writings just in terms of the detail. And basically he owns a portfolio of the best of the best. And I try, like I have my little Tony Schenner on one shoulder mm. when, when CSL gets a bit expensive or, you know, whatever it is. And I still have that bit of the value, you know, the value investor, I think, mentality of valuation matters. And I struggle to hold on to really expensive things because I'm always backing our team, which is five people, to find another idea. And so that's a bit different to personal investing where a mate of mine whose dad, I think, was the number one waste management guy uh, in New South Wales and sold his business. Um, I don't know whether it was Violia or he sold his business to Violia. And um, and so he buys stocks and refers to them as collectibles. So <laughs> he buys like ARB, the four-wheel drive company, parts and accessories, and he collects them. So he has no intention of selling them. And, you know, that business hardly grew for about eight years. And then all of a sudden during the COVID bust, earnings double and it signs up all these new agreements with Ford in America and, all sorts of things, and it's just that there's something in that patience. You do get rewarded, but you don't get rewarded all the time, and that's what makes investing really hard. But particularly as a professional, because it's crazy. Here we are trying to put portfolios together for the next five to ten years, and we get measured every four weeks. Mm. <laughs> and if you if you don't measure up, you need to explain yourself, um, and that's that's really difficult. And and I, I always remember the quote from Mike Tyson of all people who says everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And <laughs> everyone's a long-term investor until they something goes wrong, you know, whether it's a bear market or whatever. And then everyone's just about, you know, what have you done for me lately? Mm. Uh, and so, so so, we're really lucky at Intelligent Investor that we're not managing billions of dollars. We've got a, an investor base that understands what we do and has been with us for a long time. And they are genuinely long-term investors. I'm sure not everyone is, and I'm sure there's a whole bunch of them that are enjoying the ride we're giving them at the moment. But... Um, but if you've got a client base like that, it just makes all the difference. Mm. Um, there's a business. So let's talk about, I don't know if this is one of those businesses that fits into the 12 to 15 you said before, but um, a business that you emailed me earlier on, which is MA Financial, is that the business? I've yeah. never I've never is, been into it. Yeah, um, so this is this is the old Molus. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Tell us a little bit about this business, Nathan, and I guess how you think about everything like this. I think this is just would be a really good illustration of your process and the way you apply 
these kind of these ideas and strategies of, for thinking and investing better. So um, there's a great story by Charlie Munger who read um, one of the financial magazines for 50 years. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so through that 50 years, in 2001, he finally bought a stock from all the recommendations after 50 years. <laughs> and he, I think he turned something like $10 million into $80 million. I think the company was Tenneco, which is an auto parts supplier, which looked, looked like on the surface it was going broke. He didn't think so. And he bought a heap of shares and a heap of bonds as well, which are trading at um, like a third of par value. So it was like a 33% yield or something. Mm. And uh, the, the business recovered. And so he turned his, I think it was like $10 million to $80 million. And then he took his $80 million and gave it to a guy, I think his name Lee Lu, who's a, a Chinese investor. And Lee Lu turned the $80 million into $600 million or something. Um, <laughs> so it's just, how do you find ideas? Well, he read the magazine for 50 years and finally found one. So, <laughs> uh, so I, 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 you, just, you just keep reading things. You don't know where the idea is going to come from. But uh, I always read small cap managers because uh, reports the ones that I respect because they occasionally find um, a small cap I haven't heard of yet. And this one fund manager owned this what was called Mollus. And I think it listed in 2017, so it was a fairly new company as far as the ASX listing was concerned. And and I just listened to it, learned a bit about it, and it, it ticked all the boxes and, and um, wasn't cheap enough to buy. Or it was pretty small. But then we got COVID and, and the share price just collapsed. And I just, it didn't make any sense to me. It had no financial problems whatsoever. It had um, the background to the company was uh, there's an article you can read, old article in, in the Fin Review, which is really illuminating. Mm-hmm. A guy called Andrew Pridham, who was an investment banker, had met a guy called Ken Molus in America. And Ken Molus was actually somewhat famous for running a, a somewhat small investment bank. But I think he'd done some monstrous deal with a Saudi Arabian company. I think maybe he floated the Petrobras or whatever that um, enormous company was like the biggest float ever in history mm. so i think that's what made his name uh, anyway ken miles said look i want to back you and i'll start you up in australia so they started this business in 2009 called molus where uh, ken molus or the parent molus company had i think maybe had 40 percent of the shares or something um and andrew pridham along with his two understudies and um, they own most of the rest of the shares so they they just sort of um kept ticking away like i'd never heard of them while they were a private company and but when, um, when COVID hit, I was aware of the stock. I was aware of the business. And the share price had gone out to like $1.29. And I think I bought a few shares. But I didn't buy many because I was all in Frontier, which has gone nowhere. And Molus <laughs> ended up going up to $10. So, you know, talk about frustrating. Um, so it's a very, it was quite illiquid. Uh, I couldn't buy it for the funds. I tried, but it was just too illiquid. But the things I really liked about the business was here were these guys, who, who the founders who were in charge, there was three. There was actually like almost dual management. There's dual management today, where the two CEOs share the role, which is quite unique. Mm. I'm always interested in when people are doing something unique, because uh, it just says they're thinking about things differently. Sometimes it might just be clear they're doing something dumb, <laughs> or to for greedy or something. Uh, but this just sounded really sensible. We had the sort of top dog training up his two youngsters, and so they're very experienced now. And and basically, what the business is is a mini Macquarie. And so everybody knows Macquarie and everyone sits there and goes, geez, I wish I'd bought Macquarie in 1990. Mm. Well, here you are. You know, here's COVID bust. Here's Macquarie in 1990. Uh, same type of business in the sense that it's an investment bank. Uh, recently they represented, they made $37 million out of representing James Packer through this recent ordeal with Crown Casino alone. So obviously that helps. 
<laughs> uh, they do other stuff. Um, I won't go into all the different bits and pieces, but essentially it's a little investment bank or a boutique fund manager um, with this growing funds management business on top of the sort of investment bank services. And so that's a really nice place to be in. Um, we've seen overseas that one thing I think really helps people like is to look at what other businesses have worked well in the world. And if you look at some of the biggest businesses in the world that have done incredibly well and continue to do incredibly well um, is Brookfield in Canada, yeah. AKR, Apollo. These are massive, massive fund managers with just billions of locked-in revenue. And Macquarie basically turned into that, took that path during the GFC when um, people might remember they had the old Macquarie Countrywide and all those highly leveraged. Yeah. Um, satellite uh, businesses that were just ripping people off basically and lev leverage to the hilt. So when that model busts, they turn into funds management, which was perfect because assets were really cheap and now they're essentially a fund manager rather than the investment banker. And the beauty of that model is it's scalable. Like you can just continue to get big uh, and grow even when you're already a very large size. So that's essentially I had the insider ownership, which is really, really important to me. Because it just gives you a lot more confidence. It, it doesn't mean you've just got to buy every stock with an inside owner running the business. Um, as anyone who's owned Harvey Norman for the last 15 years will tell you, <laughs> you know, that share price has gone nowhere. And you know, Jerry has perhaps probably harmed that business as much as he's helped it. Mm. Um, but it's something I really look for when you find, you know, the ARBs, um, even CSL, like it wasn't inside owner. Like Brian McNamee used to sell all his options when they came due every year, which always surprised me. But he managed that business like he owned it. Um, which is quite unique. So that insider ownership really matters to me because you want these people with their own money on the line because they think long term, they create balance sheets where they can't be taken over, uh, and they don't they don't manage the balance sheet for the maximum profits today because that's a risk when you go into a recession that you go out of business. So that is, and you can see it, you can read it, you can just if you follow them for long enough, you can just tell in the language how they're building these businesses. They're really patient, and essentially they invest in their businesses the way we invest our client's capital is just patiently for the long term. And there aren't many of these businesses around, but interestingly enough, if you think about it, most small cap stocks have to have the founder in charge because that's how they list the business to start with. So it actually gives you a really good head start, particularly, mm -hmm. over, particularly over professional managers because there aren't all that many small cap managers around. A lot of them have gone out of business recently, uh, particularly through recession, small cap managers, you know, they go out the side door quicker than you can blink. Um, and, and there's even less value investors around now too than what there's ever been. So you've got this part of the market that's, I wouldn't say unexplored, but certainly there's less exploration going on than what there has been historically. So you can find the next MA Financial or the RPM Global um, or Frontier Digital. Like The thing that these companies have in common is that they're business models that we understand, they're business models that we think can scale. So scale is just a fancy word for saying they can continue to grow at high rates as they get bigger. And they get more profitable because the costs don't expand as quickly as the revenue does. So that's really important, particularly for a software business. Um, or, you know, the ultimate in scale is like a fund manager who you don't need an extra analyst to bring in to manage an extra dollar of revenue. Mm -hmm. Every extra dollar of revenue goes straight to the bottom line. So, um, we, you know, refer to that as operating leverage. Um, you know, you could have bought Magellan at something like 50 cents during the GFC. Hmm. Uh, they go to $100 or something. Mm. So, you know, again, another founder-led business. So um, you know, the, the characteristics are very simple, healthy balance sheet, profitable business in proven business models run by founders with their own wealth on the line. Uh, and that's, ba that's basically it. Mm. And everything off of that, you know, the three pegs really 
uh, just valuation, quality of business and quality of management. There's there's nothing new in investing. There hasn't been anything new in investing in 100 years. Um, Buffett and everyone else had this stuff figured out 100 years ago. Um, the only thing that's new with every cycle is the participants. Um, and they're the people we want to take advantage of because people are still as short-term as ever, still greedy as ever, and still want to get something for nothing, and that will never change. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, I love the the Jason's wide line that he's paid the like paid an annual salary to say the same thing two hundred different ways a year. Um, <laughs> you know, um, one of the pegs there was um, management. Do you ever meet with management? I'm not a big fan of it. The, if you're a rated fund, um, you'll never get rated unless you go and tell them that I'm spending every day of every week going to meet all these management teams. The reason I don't like it is because you, they can't tell you anything that isn't publicly available anyway. Uh, what I think where it is actually really important is with the small caps. You can actually go and learn a lot about the business because it might it's potentially a new business in a new industry you don't know anything about. But, you know, I don't need to go and meet with the CEO of a casino company to know what's going on in there. It's on the front page of the news for a start. <laughs> but, it's a, but it's a very simple business to begin with. And I've been doing this for, you know, three decades now. So I don't need, don't need to meet with the CEO. I can tell from their actions and what they're saying, what's going on. Um, but but it, it is can be useful and it's finding those new companies. But there's, there's so much, like you're not at a disadvantage not being able to talk to management and you can actually uh, get the uh, commentary from the updates usually somewhere online, mm. um, particularly the, I know you definitely can with the international stuff. Mm. So, but it, again, if you keep things simple, there's only so much you need to know and, it's funny, like, uh, I remember Buffett and Munger shared this story about how they went and met a manager and they were so freaked out by this guy, they just couldn't put a dollar into this stock and the stock went up like tenfold. And uh, because my wife has worked at Baby Bunting and I've seen how the staff get treated in there, like there's no way I could invest in that business, yet it's probably an all right business. So like there's all these strange things that investing about your own biases and um, you know, but I'm sure people will probably look inside investment Sundays and go, what's going on in here? And you can look on the outside and it's just a boring fund manager doing pretty boring things. Um, but it just all depends on your point of view. But I, I don't value meeting management, I think, how a lot of people do. I, I think valuation matters a million times more than that. Understanding the business is crucial. And if you need to understand the business, you're probably going to get a quicker phone call from the CFO anyway. Mm -hmm. so, and, and personally, I'd much rather my CEO was working and fielding calls from fund managers like me. Mm. The last thing I want in, in the world to be doing is focused on marketing is marketing the share price. I um I was telling you before that I went and saw a company down here south of Sydney today. It's going to be on the podcast soon. And um, this is a like a traditional manufacturing business. And I said to the CEO, it's a hundred mil market cap, so it's a small company, right? And um, I said to the CEO, how many people do you get coming through a year? And he's like, oh, maybe one or two. And I'm like, oh, what about, you know, funds and whatever? He's like, oh, they might. Maybe every now and again we have like a call. And I think this is, so this is like the front the frontier of these small caps. Like no one really understands what's going on because no one's bothered to go and have a look. Um, and that's where I get value from it because I'm learning about a business in a new industry. But I, I've, I would say over, overall, I've probably been sold more than I have learned from those experiences, if that's fair to say. Um, I've got a question, like a bit of a, a primed question, Nathan, which is then you've been doing this a long time. 
who who is one of the better capital allocators from a you know management team perspective that you've come across? Look, I, I think CSL, uh, which I already talked about, is the best I've seen, and I think just just because of the difficulty, um, one of the greatest stories ever I ever heard was uh, I talk about trying to find something unique. Mm-hmm. So Brian McNamee had testicular cancer and was laying in bed right. getting treated. And but at the same time, he had made a bid for a company, uh, which started with a T. I can't actually think what it was called, Teletrix or something like that. Mm. Anyway, this would have really consolidated CSL's position in the US. And he raised, I think it was like two billion dollars or whatever it was from shareholders to 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 make the acquisition, which is rare anyway, right? Because you don't normally see that. Normally, you see a company just goes and borrows a crap load of money and makes mm. this aggressive acquisition and maybe there's a share raising to go with it but that's not normally how things are done and that to me was unique in itself because buying with equity and buying with your own equity is, is a safe way to do it right because if it doesn't work out you don't blow up your business whereas you take on the debt you are risking up blowing up you know whatever good business you've got underneath or maybe it's a bad business but who knows mm. <laughs> it's a sort of doubly bad business that's going worse and so that was unique in itself but then the u.s um government or the regulator said, look, no, we're not going to let you buy this business because your market power would just be too much. And so he said, okay, so what you normally see in these situations is the CEO of the business goes, oh, you know what? Yeah, Because, you know, CEO is always trying to make the business bigger so mm-hmm. they can get paid better and like they can get their rewards and their bonuses. So that's always happening. So that's the difference between the, the founder and the what I call the commercial CEO um, mentality. Mm-hmm. And so, so he said, okay, look, this is shareholders' money. We're not going to keep this money. It's not ours. They gave us this money for the acquisition. We're going to return it. And so he said, we're going to return it through a share buyback. And so that's what he did. And there was also part of that story. So remember, this is going on while he's in bed getting treated for cancer. Mm-hmm. He said um, a lot of other CEOs would too would be very stubborn. Now, they've been told no, and then they'd go and fight it in the courts because he really wanted it. It was a valuable acquisition. And so he didn't do that. He was actually pragmatic and said, you know what, it's fine. Um, let's not go and battle this. Let's give the money back to shareholders and get on with our life. And, you know, and CSL has probably gone up eightfold since then. So to me, that they're, they're really unique characteristics of a capital allocator. Their capital allocation is such a fancy word. I, I sort of hate the financial lingo that we use sometimes. But you know, particularly when you're doing a podcast or a video for people who are trying to learn and you're using mm. words, like the capital allocation is just how you spend the profits. And, and that, but that's really important. And the reason it's important, because I, th- I think the statistic is something like over a decade, 70% of the value of the business comes from how those profits are spent. Mm. Let's let that sink in. That. That's great. Basically, all the value of the business over the next decade comes from how those profits are spent. Not making those profits, but how they're spent. So that capital allocation decision is absolutely crucial. And that sort of, you know, comes back to that sort of feeds back into that finding businesses that can actually do something useful with that money. Because if there's not, nothing useful to do with it, they've got to return it to shareholders, which is fine. If they've got nothing useful to do with it, that's what you want. So essentially that's what the banks do, right? They, there's just, they can't lend all their profits. So they pay back these dividends and we get the franking credits and, and that's fine. But then you find other more ambitious risk-taking CEOs who just want to reinvest that money in I'm just trying to make the business bigger for the sake of getting a bigger bonus. And they're the companies you've got to avoid at all costs. And usually you can tell because they call the acquisitions company transforming. So they're actually telling you to sell. <laughs> um, 
If uh, so, if you if you could go to dinner with uh, one investor and one CEO, if you could get them both together at the same time, who would you go with? Uh, I have no idea, even though you gave me an hour to think about it. But uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you one story. It's might be yeah. a bit more interesting. Is um, I can't actually think who who wrote Poor Charlie's Almanac. Can you remember Peter oh. Peter Kaufman? Um, I'm going to Google it. So, so we actually met him one day. So we went to uh, California, and he has a little business uh, just outside, or I guess it is LA, but yep. it's, it's sort of quite out of um, the CBD as such. And we went and sat with him for for four hours and had lunch with him. Huh. So this this guy, uh, for people who don't know him, uh, so Poor Charlie's Almanac is a very famous book. Mm. And if you if you don't know Charlie Munger, he's um, very quick witted, but um, doesn't tolerate fools is a nice way to put it. Yeah. And and Peter's the same. Peter has uh, had met Charlie and uh, he actually put some questions to Charlie and they ended up getting along and they became friends. So it's a pretty hard thing to do because it's hard to be friends with Charlie because <laughs> uh, there's not many people he lets into his circle. He's just whip smart too. And so he, he wants to be mentally stimulated. So if you can't do that, he probably hasn't got any time for you. And um, and sitting with Peter, was uh, the one thing he told us, which was really interesting, and he said, um, Berkshire had done deals with 3G, who you might remember probably yep. a decade or so ago. And he didn't really like the culture of 3G, whose culture was really to buy businesses, cut costs dramatically, improve the margin. So I guess a bit of a private equity type style of investing, um, even though it's sort of funny to say investing when they're just ripping the guts out of these businesses and loading them up with debt, mm. taking the cash out and then trying to punt these businesses onto some other poor sucker. And and he really didn't like that. He thought that was really against Berkshire's um, culture. And I thought that was really interesting because um, you know, Buffett and Berkshire, no one has a better record than them. No one's done more for, I think, people how they view business or investors or how to learn or anything. But it was interesting to sit there with someone who was friends with them and, and openly or openly criticised them amongst us four. Um, and, and he talked about, actually, if you wanted to get, to get rich and earn a really good living, he said there's – you know, look for these sort of small businesses. Now, this is America, so mm. small business was him was probably five hundred million or a billion dollars. Mm. I mean, he actually had a lot of had a lot of value that way, and he was perfectly happy with this seemingly little business off the radar, living his life and just every day trying to get extra productivity out of his business. And we just don't sort of have, I think, that entrepreneurial flair. Or I don't read much about it anyway. I'm sure we do have plenty of entrepreneurs, but it's sort of not the culture in Australia. I wouldn't have thought. I think you have to battle pretty hard to grow a business in Australia and we tend to flip houses more than build businesses. But that was a that was a really great opportunity to talk to someone who was much smarter than I was. And and also just, you know, enough was enough. Like he didn't need to be a multi-billionaire. You know, he just mm. really enjoyed the, the process of business. He enjoyed the process of thinking and learning and 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 looking after his staff. You know, and it's a great way to live. Like we don't all need to have hundred million dollars to live well or aspire to that. And I could talk about, I've seen the worst of money. Um, so to find people that are just are passionate about whatever it is they're doing, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't even, like I don't, <laughs> I don't have any names, but the people I'd like be interested in are not even investors anymore. I, I started reading reminiscence of a stock operator two days ago, and I think that's the first investing book I've picked up in five or six years or something. Because mm. um, I don't really want to learn more about investing. I want to learn more about people. And how they behave, and there's people doing a lot more interesting stuff than investing. Like I feel like a robot these days. You know, mm. it's expected. I know what I have to do in certain situations because you're just so well tuned after doing it for 30 years. 
So it sort of takes a little bit of the excitement out of it, but that's what happens when you, you know, same with the guitar, you've got to be careful, I think, after you get so good that you lose the feel and you just become robotic and you're not creating anything anymore. Um, so in terms of investors and CEOs, um, I'll pass, mate. I'd rather have a beer with you. <laughs> well, I look forward to that. But um, yeah, I, that's, a, that's a cool story, sitting down for four hours. It's funny how you can just lose time with some really great people when they give you the time. Um, that's really special. So um, you, you kind of mentioned, so a few, you've touched on this a few times, Nathan, which was like earlier on you said you just wanted financial dependence. And there you just talked about this guy that, you know, it's kind of, he's happy to run his own race and just, you know, just do what he wants to do and kind of design his life. Um, so if you had a bucket load of money, right, you had a truckload of money, would you still do the same thing then? Yeah, the interesting thing is, you know, I became financially independent a little while ago, not that long ago, but enough to, to live off. We don't have a fancy house or anything like that, but my wife's earning a lot more money now than I ever thought she would, so that's just completely changed our lives. <laughs> and uh, we could live off her wage now because we have pretty minimal expenses and your life tends to get a bit cheaper and less, less uh, aside from our kids. Mm. Um, you know, you're not, not uh, sort of going out and doing the fun things that you used to anymore. So funnily enough, your budget sort of shrinks a little bit in that respect, but obviously gets taken up by your kids. Mm. Um, but, but I enjoy what I do. And, and I'm, I think, I think if you were asking me five years ago, I think I would have said I'd just would have quit by now and just managed my own money. Um, but it's taken a, a while to get intelligent investors. You know, I've been in this business since 2006 and it's taken ages, a long time to get this business to something that's actually a lot more exciting and sustainable. And I think we're only just scratching the surface with our funds business. The returns are great. I, I really enjoy mm. the people we work with. They're great people. And it seems a shame to walk out of that when it was just things are finally, after all these years, starting to go well. Um, but I enjoy the people more than anything. That's, that's what keeps me there. If those people weren't there, I wouldn't be there. But the, um, in terms of, you know, I still enjoy the challenge of investing. You know, it's, it's the greatest drama in the world, probably other than politics, if you're into that. But in terms of actually doing anything different, um, you know, I've got plenty of time to learn the guitar and I, I go to the gym every couple of days, although I procrastinate for two hours before I do it. <laughs> I get to hang out with the people I like and, and um, you know, I can't really ask for anything more than that. There's no other real big challenges out there and um, managing my own money actually sounds pretty boring these days. I, I had all these plans. I was going to follow the Formula One season around the world. <laughs> um, but you realise that we've, we've still got, we've kicked our eldest son out, but we've got twin 11-year-olds and they need to go to school, so I can't go anywhere anyway. So, um, <laughs> so I think for the next few years, the challenge is still there. Yeah. Um, I enjoy investing and at some point I'd like to, as I've talked about before elsewhere, just own my flash apartment looking over Bondi at some point. But you know, $100 million is going to make no difference to me and, and the research shows that once we're really earning about, I think it's like $50,000 a year in income, our increasing happiness is marginal at best. And as I said, I've seen the worst of money and, and large amounts of money seem to cause more problems and um, opportunities for most people. Mm. Yeah. Um, the apartment looking over Bondo would be nice though. Um, yeah, i got to admit. Uh, mate, there's, there's a heap of ways that people can get involved with Intelligent Investor, right? Like, um, there's a funds, which is great. And there's subscriptions. Um, Intelligent Investor is a, a sponsor, supporter of the show. So I'm super grateful for everyone's support and for your support coming on today. Um, I would direct everyone to the Intelligent Investor website. Um, you can have a look at all the different funds, three different funds, um, but you can also have a look at the uh, subscriptions. There's a link in your podcast player if you want to uh, go 
and have a look at some Nathan's writing as well. Um, you do the, like the the monthly and the quarterly updates and all that sort of stuff. And it's all on the website, which is fantastic. Because if you are looking for like 12 to 15 of these names on the ASX, um, the way I think about it, and I, I'm doing a plug for your business here, Nathan, but it's it, just let me go for a sec. Um, the way I think about it, right, like I could, you know, the old Buffett thing, I could go from A to Z on the ASX, um, probably just filter out a bunch of like, like speculative miners and all that and get down to maybe say 700 companies. Um, but oh, I could probably shortcut a lot of that and uh, just start learning from guys like yourself, um, Gaurav, the team. And I think if you're, no matter where you are on that investing journey, um, save yourself some time, go and read what these guys are putting out. And uh, you get, I think you gave yourself a bit of a harsh rap before you're a bloody good writer, mate. And um uh, yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, I know there's some great writers in the business, but uh, you know, don't don't discredit yourself. So go and check out Intelligent Investor. It's all in the show notes there, and you can hear more from Nathan. Mate, I got one more question, which I'm really interested in. I think you've kind of brought a lot of these to the table, anyway. But um, like throughout this conversation, I can tell that you um, you think independently of, in a lot of facets of life, but. The one question that I have is, is it's kind of forces you to think a bit critically about the way the world works or even the investing or business world works, which is what's one thing that you believe that most people would disagree with you on? Mm, should have done more preparation. Should have given you more than an hour. <laughs> I think it, this, this is really boring. This is really boring. No. But, but I think one of the biggest mistakes young investors can make, and I made this too, was just to focus too much on popular financial statistics. So price-to-earnings ratio is a classic. Mm. Uh, it, it tells you very little, really does. Like a price-to-earnings ratio for Woolies or Coles, where it's a very stable business and doesn't grow very much, you know, it gives you a quick idea of what sort of sort of implied by the valuation. But I think you use the. It's easy to use the financials as a crutch. And if the biggest mistake I made early on and. and um, I'm glad I just thought of this. Is the when you come in, particularly to a professional organisation where you've got investors have been doing this for a long time, you're very scared about making a mistake. So my boss would always ask me why I was so slow doing my research. It's because I was reading every footnote in the annual mm. report because I did not want to miss anything. I didn't want to make a mistake. So what that actually typically does is because you know when you're just the average Joe who pays no attention and someone gives you a tip, mm. you don't want to be that guy just giving a tip and just. No, inf no information, it's just a speculation. But what you do on the flip side is by being so careful and focusing too much on numbers, for example, is you don't think. So when I was sitting there with CSL thinking, okay, it's $32, I think this is a really great business. It's got some short-term issues that people worry about, but I think they're going to go away and I think it'll be a $40 stock then. I wasn't imagining what could this business become in 10 years? What could this business become in 15 years? You know, with Domino's, like, could Domino's go and be successful in Europe and then go to Japan and then become the number mm. one Domino's franchise on the planet? You know, I just wasn't thinking that big because you don't want to be that idiot that sounds like an idiot saying, this stock could go up 20 times over the next 10 years because you sound like an idiot. Mm. You know, and all the other brokers, they've got all their numerical assumptions around the same figure because they don't want to look like an idiot either because otherwise people won't invest with them. And if they're wrong, I haven't helped them. If they're wrong, they lose their job. Mm. You know, so it's, that's our old saying. It's um, better to succeed conventionally than to fail unconventionally. 
So that idea of really think, just sit alone in a chair and think about, geez, what could this business become in 10 or 15 years? And that's how you have a much better idea of what businesses have the potential to compound your money at 15 or 20% a year or whatever that great number is. But you've got to think, you're not going to read it in a book. You're not going to read it in an annual report. You've just got to think by yourself and just imagine. And that's, a, that's, that's the skill and that's really hard. Mm. But if you've got that um, and you can apply that to the great businesses and you can buy them at a discount and you've got great management, like you can't lose money over time. You just can't. Yeah. Um, you know, that journey that you just talked about is uh, it's something that I see very often in particularly in investors that are like two to five years in. Once they discover these tools, it's like there's got, to, oh, I got all these tools in my, my toolkit and I'll just go in and just do, do, do all these things on all these little details and get really in the minutia and you really get stuck in it. And then you're like, but like there's conflicting signals. You're like, but this one says that is not growing. And this one says it is growing. And this one is like, this is good. And this is bad. And you just like freeze. And it's like, no, just step back. Look at the business. Look at it and just think, where could it go? I think that's the art of investing. And I, yeah, I, I you know, with writing, let's come back to that for a sec. With writing, a lot of investors if they're doing their own investment thesis they're writing it down in a google document or whatever they're doing or if they're new analysts they tell you everything they tell you here's the here's the uh, thesis and it is a university's thesis thesis on this small cap company just give me the 300 word version tell me what you actually think yeah no that's spot on so i I always say i don't pick this up from somewhere but just what are the three things that matter Hmm. that's it you do all that work to work out what the three things that matter are and Hmm. they're pretty obvious Mm. like you can get lost in the weeds very easily it's called paralysis of analysis yeah but just work out what the three things that matter are make a judgment call and, and if like what does peter lynch say if you can't explain what a business does with a crayon then you don't understand it <laughs> yeah. just stay away but, yeah. but it's that discipline that behavior you know steve said to me when i first started intelligent investment i walked in the door he said investing is 80 percent behavioral or psychological and 20 percent analysis and if he's been wrong on anything, that 80, 80% is probably 95%. Mm. And, and funnily enough, the older you get, the more experienced you get, it's probably 99%, yeah. 1% analysis. Because I've already done the analysis. I know what these businesses do. Mm. So it's just about discipline, patience. And at the moment, no one's got any patience. You know, people at the moment, they're just looking for the inflation going down, interest rates going down, the Fed pivot, and then we're away to the races. And no one's got patience. No one, no one wants to think that this might go on for two years or, or more, which I think is quite likely is you know, slowly, very slowly, um, given the slow transmission of interest rates because we've got people on fixed mortgages still going out a couple of years. Um, you know, this could be a quite a slow downturn and people will hate that. People can deal with the Band-Aid getting ripped off. They can't deal with a, a thousand cuts. Mm. It's really painful for people, particularly in investing. So, you know, patience is the key on top of all that. Mm. Nathan, uh, awesome chat. Who would have thought Friday Arvos could uh, <laughs> be so illuminating, mate? I, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to share some of your wisdom, with, not just with me, but with everyone listening. I, yeah, it's awesome. And everyone go check out Intelligent Investor. You'll find Nathan there. Mate, thanks again for taking the time. My pleasure, Owen. Anytime, mate.
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.